Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, May 6th. We begin with a look at what life might be like post-pandemic. We'll speak with a researcher in the history of medicine and healthcare to see if we can draw parallels to the aftermath of the Spanish flu, which transitioned into the prosperity of the Roaring Twenties. It is Sexual Violence Awareness Month. It's an opportunity to spread knowledge and awareness about this issue. So we're going to check in with the University of Calgary and find out their plan to recognize the month with an interactive online workshop. The Calgary Black Film Festival takes place later this month. The festival will present over 40 films over a five-day period focused on black culture in Canada and across the globe. We speak with festival president and founder Fabian Kola. And finally, it is the battle of every parent. Getting your kids to eat nutritious food or any food, for that matter, on a consistent basis. So we're going to get some tips on success for you from registered dietitian Sarah Remmer. 609, mornings with Sue and Andy. There are similarities between the 1918 Spanish flu and the current pandemic, but will the end of the COVID pandemic bring with it economic prosperity like the Roaring Twenties? With more on her take, we're joined by Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, a researcher in the history of medicine and healthcare at McGill University. Good morning to you, Dr. Arnold Forster. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for, for joining us this morning. Remind us what it was like when society came out of the Spanish flu 100 years ago. What, what exactly happened? Well, it was obviously also hot on the heels of the First World War. And, and the 1920s saw a period of economic prosperity, cultural flourishing, and, and quite dramatic social change, particularly in North America and Europe. You know, if people think of that period, they tend to call to mind things like jazz bars, prohibition, speakeasies, flappers, and all of that kind of joy and hedonism, but also lots of things like cars, planes, you know, telephones are newly coming into um, more popular use, and cinema as well. Do we think flap- the real positivity? Do we think flappers and gangsters are coming back then? <laughs> well... I'm not so sure. I mean, it would be lovely to think, I mean, maybe not so much gangsters, but you know, I'm sure we could, we could all do with some more flappers in our lives. But um, although there are some obvious similarities between then and now, I would be a little bit more cautious in my optimism about the decades um, ahead of us this time around. Um, I'm not quite sure whether we're going to see quite the same sort of, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being unnecessarily negative, but I would say that perhaps we might see some of the more negative traits of the 1920s mm. being um, resurrected today rather than some of the more positive ones. For example, what would you say, what, what would you think potentially could come after this pandemic and as we come out the other side of it? Well, I mean, obviously all of that fun and that hedonism costs money. Um, and although there was plenty of um, cash flying around in the 1920s, it was also a decade of um, increasingly entrenched economic inequality. So the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Um, and I'm slightly concerned that we're going to see a similar thing happening now. I mean, as we all know, while some people have managed to weather the storm of this past year, and um, for other people, it's taken you know taken a real hit to their finances. And particularly for young people, you know, the same people who we would expect to be the ones out in bars, having fun, going to parties. And they've been particularly badly hit by the pandemic in terms of employment, often working more in secure jobs and also mostly not having the kind of assets like homes and stuff to fall back on. Um, So I'm a bit concerned that we might see that kind of thing happening again. Doctor, what about the the time frame following, I guess, the uh, you know, um, the exiting of a, a pandemic back in 1918. 
compared to today. I mean, I, I've talked to some people who have said to me personally, I don't know how comfortable I'll be going to a sporting event when they open back up. I don't know how comfortable I'll be going to a packed restaurant. Do you think that this is something that, uh, you know, uh, we'll see happening in months or, or could it take a couple of years until we see things, uh, you know, back at it and maybe the optimism that we did see in the roaring 20s? And how long did it take back then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we tend to talk about the flu pandemic, that Spanish flu pandemic as happening in kind of 1918, 1919. Um, but there were still waves of the pandemic that continued on right through the early 2020s, 1920s, you know, 1921, 1922, even 1923. There were, if Chicago went back into lockdown in 1923, a subsequent wave of the pandemic. Um, and so, and, and this is true for today, right? We like to think of, we hope to see we would like there to be a clear, neat endpoint to the pandemic. One, you know, a, a, a date in the diary that we can say, okay, it's all over now. We vaccinate enough people. We can go back to normal life. But history shows us that that just isn't really the case, especially with things like pandemics that have these huge, um, diffuse, um, impossibly large impacts on society and on culture. And so I think, although you know, it feels like in some places in the world anyway. We are approaching a return to normality. I do think it's going to be a while before things feel like they were before. I mean, if they ever do, I mean, there are some things that might be with us, Mm -hmm. you know, more permanently. Doctor, obviously times are very different, but in in terms of work after the pandemic in, in the 1920s, how did people go back to work at that time? Can we compare that in any way to now? Well, I think the other big difference, obviously, is that we now have vaccines. And in and although there were vaccines for some diseases in 1918, 1919, 1920, there wasn't a vaccine for the flu. Um, and so the Spanish flu end was also more protracted, partly because we didn't have this, you know, sort of <laughs> miracle solution almost, or what seems like a miracle solution. Um, and so in, in some ways it was trickier to navigate those sorts of things like going back to work, reopening cinemas and theatres and what have you, um, because there wasn't the same uh, clear identifier of you know, people who would or would not get the disease or were much more likely or much less likely to get the disease. Um, but you do also have, and this is one of the big you know, positive things that happened in the 1920s, you have a massive increase of women returning to the, la- or entering the labour market. And um, this is partly because um, the First World War you know, tragically, a lot of young men or a lot of men lost their lives. And so there was this big sort of space opened up in in lots of jobs and lots of industries for women to, to newly participate. They got the vote in a lot of places as well, which is, you know, the key to full participation in public life. Um, and things like um, professions like medicine and law and the number of female doctors, the number of female lawyers massively increased over this period. Um, and so... I mean, that's just something that's probably not going to happen now. Obviously, women can already work in all those professions, but and, and we haven't had quite the same uh, gender disparity in deaths as we did in the, in the 1914 to 1918 and then 1918 to 1919. So there are similarities and differences, I suppose. We are going to get you to look far ahead here. We have a text that said, hey, don't forget about the dirty 30s that came after the roaring 20s. I'm not sure if that's something uh, that you've looked at in your research. Are we going to see a high uh, followed by a low? Is that a possibility? I mean, there are economists who have suggested that kind of recovery curve. Um, I'm not an economist, so I can't comment with any real authority. But I will say that I do think we should be a bit cautious about what's going to happen 
economically going forward and especially for individual people who have lost their jobs and you know are really going to struggle I think to get to get themselves out of the economic situation they've been put in this past year and I think lots of you know, obviously in lots of places in the world we've had massive government intervention and things like you know grants for unemployment but also furlough schemes people being you know paid to stay home all those things in my opinion have been great and I think we can't just withdraw those that sort of support immediately otherwise we're going to see I think quite damaging lasting effects. Fascinating discussion thanks so much for your time this morning doctor appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Dr. Agnes Arnold Forrester, researcher, history of medicine and healthcare at McGill University. 8-11 now, and May is Sexual Violence Awareness Month, and the University of Calgary is taking the opportunity to spread knowledge and awareness on the issue with their new Consent Workshop. Carla Birch, UCalgary's Sexual Violence Support Advocate, joins us now with details on this program. Good morning, Carla. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. Well, appreciate your time. Obviously, we've heard over the years, this is not something that is new about, you know, sexual violence in a post-secondary setting. Is that basically what this will focus on or is it go beyond that? Uh, the workshop itself? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, the workshop isn't necessarily geared just at, um, you know, experiences in post-secondary, but I think was designed just recognizing that rates of sexual violence haven't declined um, while other major kind of assault type charges have. And so we just needed to get innovative and spend a lot of time thinking about how to invite participants to think about consent in a bit of a different way outside of just a legal obligation and that um, consent in all our relationships is built on compassion and empathy. Uh, and and it, it's not just in those intimate moments. Um, we really push past conventional teachings um, and talk about consent is something that we need to think about in all of our um, relationships. It's a parallel practice. It aims to promote positivity and healthy relationships by building empathy and understanding for others um, and yourself in these moments. I think I heard from a lot of my colleagues across the country uh, that we recognized traditional consent training wasn't working. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we've been doing the same thing for a long time and rates have not declined. And so we all really believed we need to do something different. So it was a chance to really dig into uh, an opportunity to rethink what we've been doing and what hasn't been working and what might um, be different this time. Carla, I was kind of shocked to see that it's only been since 2018 that May, the month of May, has been recognized as Sexual Violence Awareness Month um, here in our province. Has the U of C always uh, recognized it over the past few years and, and made sure that they you know, had some programming available during the month? Yeah, so the provincial government uh, declared May Sexual Violence Month in 2018, and um, the university has been kind of championing that since since its inception. And we've collaborated with uh, Bow Valley College and Mount Royal University as well, because I think it's really important for the community to see that all of us are engaged and standing in solidarity against uh, an issue that um, has been a long time needing, needing addressed. Talk to us a little bit about the consent workshop itself, Carla. I mean, obviously, uh, women will attend, but is it focused towards males? It's focused to people of any gender. Um, I think we really got to get away from this idea that sexual violence um, is handled in a criminal setting. Uh, those those processes haven't been overly effective for a long time. Um, sexual violence doesn't happen by somebody, you know, a serial offender who jumps out of behind a bush. Um, these things are happening, especially on campus, between friends, most commonly. Uh, and then it's, it's, 
you know, family members and, and partners. And so I really want to move away from painting this as something that only bad people do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in relation, you, you, you need to come to this training and you stand the chance of uh, learning how to stay safe in those relationships. And so we just, we, we, we want to help people um, start to think about and, and deal with feelings that we all experience when we hear a refusal to an invitation. Um, we want to normalize those feelings, teach people positive ways to manage those feelings so they don't hurt themselves or someone else. And we really look at um, one of the new things is how do we work on this issue collectively? Mm-hmm. Um, what do all of us as a community have to do in supporting healthy relationships? Carla, let's talk about you know the elements of the workshop because obviously you have Everything that we talk about in 2021, in May of 2021, is 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 in the online world for the for the most part. Is that the case mm-hmm. here? And what does it look like when people sign up? What are they going to be seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Everything. Uh, the workshop is online right now. Um, I think ideally it would be great to do these things in person. Uh, the kind of work that I do really depends on building relationships. So we hope to do that in this workshop. It's it's lengthy. Um, lots of consent workshops have been done over half an hour, 45 minutes. This We're asking people to give up three hours, minimal. Um, we do it over two weeks, so we're not going to sit three hours and talk about uh, some really challenging topics, but um, it's, it's aimed to build relationship with the folks that are there. We ask people to keep their cameras on um, so that we can build safety in the group. And, uh, you know, it's we haven't had to do this online before the pandemic, so um, we'll see how this plays out. Can you tell us how to register, Carla, if folks are interested in getting on board with this? Yeah, there's. Uh, if you go to the University of Calgary website, there's a link on the sexual violence support um, page. It's really important um, that students at, at the universities here in, Cal- in Calgary know that there's support. So all of our websites will have uh, links to join this workshop. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it very much this morning. Yeah, thanks for taking uh, the interest. Thank you. That's Carla Birch, who's UCalgary's sexual violence support advocate. 7.50 now, and the Calgary Black Film Festival has released their 2021 lineup. To talk about that and the creation of the festival, we're joined this morning by the president and founder of the Calgary Black Film Festival, Fabienne Cola. Good morning, Fabienne. Good morning, Sue. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, you've been called the Queen of Festivals, so obviously we should have faith that you are bringing us a top-notch film festival. Tell us why you created this long-overdue festival for Calgary. Oh, thank you so much for the compliment. Actually, the Calgary Black Film Festival is the necessary festival right here, right now. Um, for us all, because it uh, brings us uh, a slate of the wonderful and powerful films that would never have made it um, to Calgary and Alberta otherwise. And um, those are films that are educating, inspiring, empowering, and entertaining. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a great, great, great uh, addition. Fabienne, you can't keep a good festival down, not even a mm-hmm. pandemic, so you move stuff online. Tell us what it'll look like and how people can access uh, all this content. Yes, yeah, so uh, the beautiful, the, the good news, as you said, mm-hmm. is that the festival is accessible online. That means people from coast to coast to coast can participate at the very inaugural Calgary Black Film Festival, even that lovely in itself, Andy. So this is great. It's an international party that we're having right here in Calgary online for now. Um, and people are going to be able to enjoy great films 
41 films from 10 countries, but also great conversations and panel discussions about diversity and inclusion in the industry and how we can all join together and make it, you know, um, a more impactful um, celebration. Fabienne, I was actually quite surprised to read that Alberta has Canada's third largest black population after Ontario and Quebec. But I'm assuming there is lots more for uh, everybody included in this festival, not just for the, the black folks who are here in our province. Oh my goodness, completely. I mean, this is a festival for everybody, especially people that are non-black, because that is a unique opportunity to for everybody to dive into films that they don't have easy access to. Those are international films. Some of them have been in other international festivals, and some other ones are making it for the first time in Canada. So this is a great opportunity to be inspired and educated, but also this is an opportunity to bring the whole family um, to watch these, because you don't even have to leave the couch so um everybody prepare your best pjs your favorite pjs and then you know sit back and relax and enjoy great films while supporting diversity off and on screen at the same time because these are um filmmakers that are black and non-black because some of the films were done by non-black filmmakers as well as long as diversity is reflected on screen so it is really an endeavor of love and we have some great great films for you guys the closing film is a must see it's called john Wear reclaimed yes. and uh, this is a film about a black cowboy a black rancher and Calgary he came legend. to calgary yeah. mm-hmm. yes yes exactly that you know him very well so but it was a discovery for us this year in canada because not everybody knew him so you know films are um like a narrative fiction films we have documentaries we have um short films and um features so it's gonna be a great great celebration Well, Global News, proud to be supporting the Calgary Black Film Festival as co-presenters in its inaugural year. We here at the radio side of Global, obviously proud to be part of it as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Fabienne. Appreciate your time. Thanks for the support. CalgaryBlackFilms.com. You got it. CalgaryBlackFilm.com. Fabienne Cola is the president and founder of the Calgary Black Film Festival. Thank you. It's not just a case of getting your kids to eat, but also trying to incorporate nutritious foods. That's the battle of every parent, and at times, it can be daunting. No worry, though. Help is here. Calgary-based registered dietitian Sarah Remmer is co-author of the new book, Food to Grow On, The Ultimate Guide to Childhood Nutrition from Pregnancy to Packed Lunches. Good morning to you, Sarah. Good morning. Well, you're not only a registered dietitian, you're a mom as well, so this is personal (laughs) for you, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah, um, my co-author Kara and I are both moms, so, you know, we have that nutrition expertise and education and skills, but we also have lived it firsthand. So we really do have that compassion and empathy for parents because we experience it every single day. It's challenging, for sure. It is, Sarah. So what is going on? Why are so many kids afraid of food and they'll only eat a couple of things and usually not healthy things at that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we need to know as parents that picky eating or being particular about what foods they eat is totally 100% normal. This is a normal milestone for kids, and often they go through several picky eating stages. Every child is different, but I think what makes it even harder and more challenging is that as parents, we take on the role of getting our kid to eat or getting our kid to eat certain foods or certain amounts, and any pressure our kids feel 
actually hinders their ability to want to eat those foods all on their own. So we really have to take the pressure off and decide or, or choose to just focus on our roles as the feeder. Very interesting because, you know, it's, it's fine to find recipes that they like, but something that you delve into a little bit more in the book is about uh, cultivating positive experiences of surrounding food, every age of their development. So uh, it's interesting because I never thought of it from this perspective. I want to make sure that they don't go to bed hungry, that they don't go to school hungry. But at the same time, we are going to be really setting them up as eaters for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really do have to put our long-term lens on when it comes to feeding our kids and not just think short-term like getting our kids to eat right now because we want to we want to sort of nurture that healthy long-term relationship with food so that they grow to be confident eaters and competent eaters um, you know, into adulthood. So one tactic that we talk about a lot in the book is this division of responsibility in feeding, which kind of makes everything really sort of simple between parents and kids when it comes to the feeding role. So parents are sort of in charge of setting up a structure. Um, so they're, they choose what, when, and where food happens in the household. And then kids choose if and how much they eat. So it really takes the pressure off of everyone and everyone sort of knows what their responsibility is when it comes to food. Okay, well, first of all, I've been called a breeder, but now I've been called a feeder. Okay, that's a new one for me. Uh, but so, so explain what you just said. What does that look like in practice at home? So what that looks like is parents decide what is served at mealtime. So you want to make sure there's a variety of food and that there's at least one food that everyone will like at the table and everyone gets access to the same foods. There's no short order cooking or alternate meals for any child. And then parents also decide the timetable. So you want to make sure that you're giving kids enough time in between meals and snacks so they gain an appetite. So every two to three hours is when you should be serving food. So it might be three meals and snacks in between. And then parents decide where that food is served. So ideally at a family table without distractions. And the other thing that we need to make sure that we focus on as parents is keeping things positive. So whether our children eat or whether they don't eat, we want our kids to have a positive experience with that food because that will bring them one step closer to enjoying that food and accepting it when they are ready. So we just want to keep things positive and let our kids learn how to self-regulate and eat all on their own. Some great tips, some great advice from somebody in the know. Well, where do we pick up the book, Sarah? You can pick it up pretty much anywhere, Amazon, Indigo, any bookstore or online. It's pretty much available anywhere. Good stuff. Food to Grow On, the ultimate guide to childhood nutrition from pregnancy to packed lunches and more about Sarah at sarahremmer.com. And it's a beautiful book, so if you have a chance, pick it up. If you've got any kind of picky eater, just the information, the recipes, the whole thing, it's a great book to have at your fingertips. And you know what it is? It's not just, and I've heard this time and time again, and I cringe when people say, I'm going to get your kids to eat healthy food. Take the broccoli and put it in the uh, veggie mixer and, and then you put, it, you put it in brownies. Well, yeah. I don't want to eat a broccoli brownie. And my think? picky kid can pick out a broccoli brownie can, at 100 yeah. yards. But this is more, this, this really takes a, 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 an approach of strategy to a large extent. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the end, uh, I really do believe that, and I've heard from pediatricians before, and I have four kids, so I can talk on this topic. Yeah. Um, they're not going to starve. You have to have food out for them. And yeah, it can't all be uh, candy and chocolate, although I, I do feed a lot more questionable foods uh, to my children than my wife does. Um, <laughs> as long as it's available, and they, they're grazers by nature. You they notice really that? are. My kids and my toddlers will come home and they'll have so many snacks 
that supper is just kind of a blip and then you have to give them a snack an hour and a half after supper. Yeah. And that's another, you know, that's another thing. If you feel like your kids are just grazing too much and they're not sitting down and eating the proper larger meals, then, you know, shorten the time between the meals. Like sometimes we'll have dinner really quickly after the kids get home from school because otherwise they eat so much that they literally won't eat their dinner. Yeah, there's that. It's just, it's it's a great book. Pick it up and, and maybe it will give you some help too.